0: you know reporting problems and reporting concerns sort of reminds me of having a suggestion box that uh, employees can drop a card into that never gets opened
1: <laughs> or it leads right to the paper shredder <laughs> yeah <laughs> you should at least recycle those we choose to go all to of on the you. one, one. in
0: Small step for man. One giant leap for man.
2: Greetings, everyone. This is Talking Space, episode 1504, being recorded on the evening of May 15th, 2023. My name is Larry Heron, and I'm joined this evening by Mark Ratterman of the Talking Space team, along with our guest tonight, Dr. Mary Kay Kaiser. Dr. Kaiser is a longtime research psychologist who spent 30 years at the NASA Ames Research Center and now serves as a consultant to the Human Factors Discipline Team of the NASA Engineering and Safety Center. She is the author or editor of, I am sure, dozens or hundreds of articles and papers in scientific journals and holds two patents. Tonight, we bring you a wide-ranging discussion that will cover how scientists subjectively calculate risk versus subjective risk perception, how the human race deals with low-probability, high-consequence risks, and the realities of basic human nature. How does all this relate to the issue of space debris and the world's willingness to do something about it? We're about to find out. Also, we left a big Easter egg in this episode for you. If you keep listening past the end of the show, you'll hear an extended conversation we had with Dr. Kaiser when she was talking about her curriculum vitae, and that was so interesting in itself. It could just about be its own episode as well. Now, about space debris. Uh, It seems like there's two basic aspects to the problem of space debris. The first one is a threat from space debris falling out of orbit and not completely burning up in the upper atmosphere, uh, which poses a threat to both people on the ground and planes in the air, Um, however minuscule that threat may be perceived to be by some. And the second threat has become known as the Kessler syndrome, named for the NASA scientist, Dr. Donald Kessler, who first described the scenario in a 1978 scientific paper. And it described collisions in orbit between pieces of space junk, causing a cascade chain reaction and resulting debris belt in low Earth orbit. Uh, a perhaps dramatized, but uh, still pretty horrifying version of the Kessler syndrome portrayed in the opening moments of the 2013 movie Gravity, starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. Uh, And that cascade process, Kessler told Space Safety Magazine in 2012, can be more accurately thought of as a continuous and as already started, where each collision or explosion in orbit slowly results in an increase in the frequency of future collisions. So, uh, on May 12th, 2021, the crew discovered that the station's robotic arm, which they call the Canadarm, took a hit from space debris. Uh, but this time they got lucky, although the hit left a five millimeter diameter hole in the thermal insulation of the robotic arm, its performance seemed unaffected. So we got lucky that time. So, uh, Dr. Kaiser, uh will we get lucky every time or will we have uh, eventually a problem that is much bigger than that, that causes a, a major, major or minor catastrophe even,
1: you know, nothing's a problem till it's a problem. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's two aspects to the problem of space debris. Uh, one is it, um, getting back to Earth and and doing damage there, either in the sky or on the ground or at sea. We've had incidences of debris striking the ground um, thus far. We haven't killed anyone. There was one or two injuries associated with such things. Um, The other is the problems that it causes for other satellites and possibly stations in orbit. And interestingly enough, you know, in terms of these collisions breaking the debris into smaller pieces, that's kind of good news for the people on the ground because the smaller the object, the more likely it is to burn up on re entry. Um, the smaller it is, the more problematic it might be in space because it's harder to track and catalog and keep track of these things, Um, especially if, like station, you have the option of moving to dodge a possible collision. On the subject of the collisions with something like space station. Space station's in a more safe zone of, of low Earth orbit, being on the kind of relatively lower end of the LEO spectrum, so that objects that are in that region tend to be in a more decaying orbit. If they get to a higher segment of Leo, they can persist in Leo much longer. So there's a number of different parameters to how much you should worry about this. But, you know, it certainly is a current and present danger. You mentioned the arm, the uh, harm that was done to the Canada, Canadian Space Agency arm. Um, it also was the case that when they looked at Hubble, it was very pockmarked with, with uh, small debris collisions. So you stick around long enough, something is going to get hit. Um, the station is relatively well shielded. The astronauts who are on EVA, far less so. I, I have spoken to astronauts, uh, including one who was out on that arm, providing, uh, performing a very delicate maneuver, and <laughs> way in the back of his mind was just, I hope nothing comes and hits me because, you know, even a very small particle moving at ten times the speed of a bullet, you know, if it ruptures your suit, that could be a life-threatening or life-ending um, incident. So, yeah, I think it's it's a risk that needs to be dealt with, and it's one that NASA has recognized. And there's kind of a two-prong approach. One is setting in place NASA standards for how to minimize the production of any further debris. Um, the other is what we might do to try to clear out some of the existence space debris.
2: Yeah, and that's, uh, from what I understand, it's easier to go after the bigger targets than it is the smaller targets, right?
1: Right, right. Those, and those are seen as, well, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword. They're, they obviously, in terms of energy on impact, present the larger data danger on the other hand the larger ones are easier to catalog and track um, but again tracking only buys you something if you have the capability to do a maneuver and to avoid the collision
2: right well and this kind of gets us to the the aspect of it of requiring new satellites to be able to do that, to be able to maneuver out of the way and, I guess, to reserve some of their maneuvering capability for actually uh, somehow being able to take them out of orbit or at least, you know, point them in that direction so they get uh, burned up in the atmosphere more quickly than if they just stayed where they were uh, at the end of their service life.
1: Right. So you either want them to launch out or... Launch back towards re-entry, but of course, re-entry has to be accompanied by something that makes all of the components small enough that you know burn up in re-entry is assured, or be able to ensure you know landing in a, in a safe region.
2: Right, right. So in my mind, it it sort of is like that. Uh, I'll use the example from the business that I. Sp- Bent my career in environmental, uh, assessments. Uh, we did some work for a, uh, school district in Florida that had, uh, that wanted to put a school on a certain site that was near a port and the port had, uh, uh, used anhydrous ammonia as its refrigerant and it was not far away from that school site and anhydrous Ammonia is a very toxic gas when it's released from a refrigerant system. Uh, and so basically, if there's enough of it released and the wind's blowing in the right direction, you're in trouble. Uh doesn't take but a, a few breaths to get you seriously ill or dead. Uh, and so there was a blowback to that finding in terms of, well, we got a bunch of other schools that are – uh, cited near similar things like one was near a, you know, Coke bottling plant that used that also used anhydrous ammonia, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the blowback was, well, how come we're not going to do anything about those other schools? And, you know, our response was, well, <laughs> we didn't know so much about the the dangers back then decades ago, when those schools were built uh, we didn't have the knowledge and therefore the power to do anything about it. But now we have the power and now we have the knowledge and, and we can avoid putting another school in a more dangerous place. So if we have the power and we have the knowledge to figure that out, then we should do that and not just do it the same way we've been doing it all along. And I guess the, one of the bigger discussions here is uh, that following that same principle for uh New satellites that are built
1: right. so there's two fallacies that people fall into. One is, well, nothing bad has happened those, thus far, so it must be okay to continue to do this. Um, that's a real fallacy that trap the logic trap that people fall into. Um, the other is the kind of, well, this isn't fair. other people got to do it why are you imposing on us restrictions that weren't applied to these earlier cases? And, you know, that's certainly the case in in terms of launching things into space. For years, we were pretty cavalier about it, you know, in terms of worrying about any ill effects from debris left behind. Um, You know, certainly during the space race, it wasn't something that, we were willing to sacrifice the speed and and cost of mission to to deal with, which isn't that dissimilar than, you know, the the NASA center I worked at 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 Ames Research Center. We were a super fun cleanup site because of other activities that had been conducted there, both by the military and the the semiconductor industry. Right. So it's like
2: the the same the same. Same process, right? It's like we we didn't know any better back then, and so here we are. It's
1: it's a common fallacy. And, you know, frankly, as a species, we're much better at responding to an emergency than thinking, um, doing the forward thinking, doing the proactive thinking to ensure that we prevent disasters from happening.
2: So as part of that uh trying to convince people that there's a there is actually a return on investment to spend money doing that.
1: Well, absolutely. And and there's so many places. It's it's like in our own country whenever you try to get funding for infrastructure repair and maintenance. You know, people are much more willing to fund the building of a new bridge that affords you new access and, and new transportation capabilities than to go, you know, the working life of this bridge is, you know, about 50 years and this bridge is 75 years old now. We better do some retrofitting and, and repairs and people go, ah, it hasn't fallen down yet. <laughs> right. Uh, until it does. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very hard and you can imagine – in an agency like NASA, which is chronically given more to do than budget permits, you know, to carve out a meaningful chunk of funding to deal with a problem like this is, is challenging. Well, Mark, you can probably uh, speak to this as well, that, you know, with the FAA wanting to move away from the hub-and-spoke to a free flight um, paradigm for routing traffic because it was clear that the you know, current traffic routing was, was reaching saturation point and, and getting kind of dangerous. But there was a great reticence to move away from a system that up to that point had, had proven itself, you know, very safe and reliable. And, uh, you know, NASA does a lot of collaborative research with the FAA on how to improve things and look towards next gen and future flight. But again, you know, just having the data and the reasonable extrapolation um, doesn't always convince people that action should be taken now.
0: I think in the example you gave, um, you Start to realize that there's a problem with capacity when, uh, you know, the busy major hub airports start limiting arrivals and departures because they don't have the capacity to squeeze any more in. And I've watched controllers that have been over the years, some that were just an absolute master of sequencing aircraft in, getting them in line, getting the distances just right. And, and some of these controllers, it's just like, man, I just like to watch them because they're so, so good. But it's all on the individual. Of course, a lot of it is their training and their procedures and how they work. But there's a limit to that. And that's where change needs to come along. And change is a tough thing.
1: Right. Because all you see is the cost of the implementation. Right. And since it hasn't Broken down yet, you know, again, the challenge of any sort of proactive solution is people are not good at preventive measures. We're much better at corrective measures. Um, but sadly, the correction act often comes after there's been a bad accident or disaster. And even then, sometimes we're like, well, the the circumstances that led to that particular event were so unique slash bizarre that we don't have to worry about it happening again until it does.
2: We'll be right back. You know, we do a lot of talking here on Talking Space about a wide variety of space-related stuff. But there's a lot more to talk about and report on in the universe of space. So much more. Is there something you'd like us to pay more attention to than we do? Or perhaps pay not so much attention to? But if your answer is, yeah, about a little less SpaceX, then I wouldn't hold your breath with this crew. The point is, we'd like to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Send us an email to mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. You can also attach a short audio file with your comment or question and we'll play it on the show if we can. Come on, don't be shy. Hey, I think I sound stupid and I'm doing it. And if I can, you can. Can't wait to hear from you. Thanks. And now back to the show. That brings us to the next point that I wanted to bring up, which was, uh, how we calculate the risks involved in, uh, in that kind of scenario, because, uh, right now I can tell you that the space surveillance network is currently tracking about 23,000 objects bigger than a softball. And to put that in perspective, uh, SpaceX has around 3,600 satellites already in orbit for Starlink, but it's planned for a possible total of more than 40,000. So that, that's about 36,400 still to be launched. Uh, OneWeb has a 648 piece constellation. Amazon's designing a network that's got, uh, 3,200 that are still to be launched. And, uh, Astra filed an application for its own 13,600 satellite broadband constellation. So that all just all those, you know, bigger operations over the next 10 or 15 years are going to add 2.3 times the number of objects that are being tracked today. So that's in the next 10 or 15 years. So the problem is not going
1: away. No, And you get what we used to refer to as the cumulative probability of crap, which, you know, the more elements you introduce into the system and the longer the system has to maintain function, the likelihood of even a very low probability event manifesting is distressingly high.
2: And so... How? What can we do about this? Can Can you speak to that?
1: I think NASA is finally stepping up to the plate on that. Um, the problem, the one challenge, is that NASA now is only one of a fair n- number of players in the game, and um, most of the players are profit driven entities who are trying to minimize any additional cost or overhead burden placed upon them for, for, for safety. Um, one of you talked about, you know, the rules of the road for, you know, maintaining some coherent order, uh, especially in, in Leo. Um, but, you know, you have to have everyone agree to sign up and do their part. Otherwise, you get into the situation we were talking about with building the school that, you know, I feel unfairly put upon that I have to do something when these other players didn't in the past. Or they may not have to now because they're not subject to this particular multinational agreement. Um, You know, if if we impose these standards, but China or India or one of the other russia one of the other international players chooses not to engage in that then you know you you still have a gap yeah because you know unlike the faa has control of the u.s airspace except where you know military overrides it um, but no one has control of space right there's not so we, we do set up multinational treaties and agreements, but there isn't any organization with absolute jurisdiction.
2: Yeah, and that's, uh, that brings up another point, uh, that not, not all of these additions to the number of, of pieces of space debris are unintentional. So in 2007, China intentionally destroyed its own broken weather satellite in an apparently successful test of an anti-satellite weapon.
1: Right, which gets to the huge kettle of fish that you'll have to do another entire episode on is how do we maintain (laughs) the peaceful use of space as we move into the next century. Um, But, you know... The, the problem is even when everyone has relatively benign intentions, um, <laughs> we humans just tend to make a lot of garbage and leave it behind. Um, and and we, we do that in space as well as we do um, with the huge blob of plastic floating in our ocean. Weren't we told as children to pick up after yourself? So yeah, that's that's more than just, Lady Bird Johnson's Let's Beautify America. It's it's really getting into a, a safety and, and survival issue.
2: Yeah. Hi. Well, no, no doubt it's a big problem and it's not one that we're going to solve here in 25 minutes, but, uh,
1: it's an no, but it is good. It is good, you know, because when, uh, Dr. Kessler first, you know, published his paper in 78. He was pretty much a voice in the wilderness. And I, I think he was admonished to spend no more than 10% of his time working this, this problem. So that's, yeah. you know, half a day a week. Yeah. Um, well, and,
2: and back then, the, you know, the, the problem wasn't as big. It wasn't as critical as it continues to get every day. And I guess that gets back to that whole, you know, thing about risk, you know, like there's the importance of sample size, right? <laughs> to calculate and predict risk.
1: Right. And, you know, it was always interesting to me, you know, kind of looking at risk estimation that, you know, within NASA, we, we dealt with the, the space and aeronautics, um, and aeronautics always seem to have such wonderfully large end compared to space, right? You know, you have tens of thousands of flights a day that you can collect data from. But then, you know, you talk to people in the automotive industry or the healthcare industry, and they have millions of cases to look at. And it's like, wow, you know. <laughs> We have some things we're trying to do risk estimations with, you know, 20 flights. And it's like, what kind of reliable probability estimates can you draw from that? It's like not very many.
2: Right. And Um, luckily, so far, not a whole lot of incidents to draw from.
1: Right. You know, and that's one of the beauties. um, Mark, you may know about this, um, the, the... division I was in at, at Ames Research Center was the one that ran the uh, Aviation Safety Reporting System. Do, have yes. you heard of it? Yeah, okay. Yes, I have, sure. And the wonderful thing about that is, as I always use the technical term, hinky, you know, anyone, <laughs> flight crew, um, you know, pilot, co-pilot, passengers, ground crew could do an incident report of anything that seemed atypical, even if it led to no reportable incident. So, you know, with the FAA reports, it has to reach a certain level of impact before a formal report is made. And so in terms of trying to identify precursor issues, the ASARS was very valuable for that.
2: Leading um, indicators.
1: Leading indicators, but again, even if you have the leading indicator, you need to have the will and the funding to act upon that, um, which far too often in our society, it's not a NASA problem, it's a societal problem. Um, we just do not act proactively.
0: Can I make a comparison? Tell me if I'm anywhere as close to the mark. It, you know, reporting problems and reporting concerns sort of reminds me of having a suggestion box that uh, employees can drop a card into that never gets opened.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or it leads right to the paper shredder.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You should at least recycle those. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, and, and, I, I hope that there's a lot being done to to document the near misses or as you know the one comedian said no that was a near hit um, that are happening with the space debris because again in terms of probabilistic estimates, that information has utility as well and i I hope that that's not just being put in well not the circular file but the file that no one really analyzes any further.
2: Mary, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, Dr. Mary Kaiser, who is uh, retired now, but was uh, for 30 years a research psychologist in the Human Systems Integration Division at NASA Ames Research Center. Uh, And as of of, how long ago, a year or two, you served as a consultant to the Human Factors Technical Discipline Team of the NASA Engineering and Safety Center?
1: Well, I'm still doing that. At a,
2: oh, you are? Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have a couple of tasks I'm involved in and keep my finger in the game, so to speak.
2: That's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to retire, isn't it? That's something I've been finding out.
1: You know, they, it's, it's very seductive to be drawn back in. Yeah. But you especially know, I especially mean, when they
2: tell you they want you to come back in.
1: Yeah. They never told you when you were there that, you know, they want you <laughs> to stick around, but once you leave, then they want you back. <laughs> hey, you gonna plug my book?
2: Yes, I am. I'm,
1: All I'm right. gonna plug that I'm book.
2: I'm not gonna get away from that. I'll, I'll let you plug it. Go ahead.
1: Okay, um, well, this is a very, you know, one of a kind self-published novel, but available on Amazon. Um, no, it's it's a book I wanted to write for a long time. It's called The Muse of Kill Devil Hills, and it speculates that the Wright brothers, Wilbur in particular, had a muse. In this case, it was a Greek muse, Polyhymnia, that helped him to overcome some of the inherent disadvantages he faced in going against Langley and other well-funded um, Would be aviators back for the, working on first flight. Uh, I was at Ames during the centennial of the Wright brothers' flights, and it's an amazing story. But the more you look into it, the more improbable it seemed that um, Wilbur and his brother Orv, you know, the two bicycle builders from Ohio, could could be the first one to manage this. So it's uh, called a historical fantasy. And, um, one reviewer characterized it as a wonderful, whimsical journey.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I've, I've read the, I've read the first, uh, several pages of it that were available on Amazon's website. I already ordered the book because it intrigued me so much. Uh, boy, you'll make my
1: sales for the month.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I read the first few pages, and I you, you had me at the first sentence, and I won't tell anybody what it is, but uh, the, the the opening sentence of the book snared me in. Wow. So, well, that's that's one of the fun
1: things it. about being officially retired is that you can do whatever you want that's right. if you have time.
2: <laughs> Very good.
1: Well, this has been great. I I really appreciate the invitation and, uh, I'd love to come back anytime.
2: We thank you very much for, uh, for joining us and for agreeing to do this. It's, it's not, it's not easy. It takes some time out of your day. It's, it's a little hard to set up the technical side of things too sometimes. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Mark, any, anything, anything else you want to say?
0: I'd like to also add in, uh, thank you for joining us because sometimes we get kind of narrow focused on the things that are interesting about space and technology. And when you look into the discussion that we've just had, it really makes you aware of how complex the world around us is and having somebody can look at it from a a different point of view and bring a lot of information is something that is invaluable. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you for having me join you. Um, You got a great podcast here and I was very glad to be part of it.
2: Now for that Easter egg I was talking about. Mary Kaiser, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I always like to say I was born in a log cabin in Missouri, although that's not true about the log cabin part. Um, So I was born during the era when every young person was a space cadet. Uh, My dad actually worked for McDonnell before it became McDonnell Douglas, before it became Boeing. Um, and, of course, McDonnell was given the contract for the Mercury and Gemini capsules. Um, so it was an era where everyone, you you not only collected baseball cards, you collected uh, pictures of the, the Mercury 7 astronauts. And then I kind of gave up on the NASA dream. Um, I started to pursue a career in experimental psychology. Uh, particularly looking at how human vision works. And I knew that NASA had some psychologists on their team, but I thought they were all the clinical psychologists. And then during a postdoc at University of Michigan, one of the professors there um, advised me that, no, they have actual human factors type people. And he actually did his sabbaticals at Ames Research Center. So he encouraged me, while I had another job interview out in that neck of the woods to uh, try to give a job talk at Ames. I did and uh, that was back in 85 and I joined the staff there and they kept reorganizing around me. It became, you know, we know about the heliocentric solar system. Well, I, I had a Mary-centric research center where everyone else changed organizations, but I was able to stay in one place. Um, And it was a great career. Ames was a wonderful place to work. We worked both the aeronautics part of NASA as well as the space. I used to say when NASA had a really hard problem, they would give it to those (laughs) wacky people at Ames to to figure it out. And um, (laughs) it was a wonderful career. But after 30 years, I was ready for a break. So, um, but as, as you were saying, Larry, you, you can never get too far from the fold. They call you back. They send out the sheepdog and, you know, pull you back <laughs> in to be with the fold.
2: Just when I thought I was out, they dragged me <laughs> back in. I know. <laughs> well, that's excellent. I also understand you have a couple of patents.
1: I do. Um. One was <laughs> during the, the, um, desert shield, desert storm. Um, that was a very interesting conflict because, you know, we, we, the, the joke is that we always use the technology that was successful in the previous war. So, um, we tried to use helicopters quite extensively over there, which was difficult because the high desert environment is is not very good for rotorcraft operations and one problem they had is when they would use night vision goggles for for night operations they were having a very hard time discerning the, the sand dunes and clipping them and you know we actually lost more helicopters due to training exercises than we did to enemy fire over there. So our group came up with some queuing lights, you know, that could be um, passive, um, simple to mount, that would tell you if the elevation beneath you was um, level, whether it was a slope up, slope down, and provide you a little bit of a, early warning about 10 seconds ahead, look ahead to tell you what the terrain was doing. And the Army asked us to patent that simply because they helped to fund that work and they didn't want an external company to decide to patent the technology and sell it back to them since they had funded that. Um, the other patent was more recent and that was when The Constellation program at NASA was looking at using um, the solid rocket booster as the primary rocket, but extending it to five segments. And as the uh, solid fuel burns out, um, the the rocket starts to act almost like a a pipe organ pipe. You get a lot of resonant frequency and vibration from, from that. And and it was becoming increasingly difficult for um, the crew to be able to to read displays um, at what would be a very critical, you know, make the decision abort, no abort. Um,
2: so this was because of this was because of the instrument panel vibrating or their eyes vibrating.
1: Both, both, and going their own way, wow. so to speak. Um so we tried a number of different mediations and it turned out what worked best was to do a kind of Fourier disc decomposition. you know, look at the vibration uh, signature and uh, look at the dominant frequencies and strobe the display at that frequency. Oh wow. And it you know you usually you know with some of the, your psychological, improvements, you know, improvements in displays, and people go, yeah, I see that's a little better. And this was the only one that we'd have people, you know, in the mock-up and they'd undergo the vibration and we'd turn on the the flicker uh, function and they'd go, oh, wow. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it went from completely unreadable to crystal clear. So that was very cool. Um, Of course, that particular rocket architecture um was not pursued, but you know the the technology still is there and and would be good for any vibration environment in which it's still critical for people to be able to read
2: that's that's fascinating i i I got to give you kudos for that one that's, and of course uh, it's
1: that you know when you say I have two <laughs> patents um the first patent was with <laughs> Walter Johnson, and there was a whole team of us that developed the 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 second one so you know that that was a very cool thing at nasa is that you did so much as a team and you know yeah
2: wow and and tell me when you were when you were first starting out in your career did you have any idea that you would end up doing the stuff you ended up doing
1: no, I mean, I assumed when I got my PhD that I would get a job in a university in the psychology department and and do some research. And it really is the case that a lot of researchers in universities now are doing research with a lot more application oriented. You know, it's it's you see a lot more cup, um, coupling and and funding with with from corporations. And of course, NASA funds a lot of university researchers. But um, being at NASA, we were kind of the heart of the people that did the, we, we, there's a term for it, it's called translational research, which is taking the more fundamental research and making it work to solve an applied problem. And uh, it's yeah. also called the valley of death, trying to get from, academic research to in-field applications. So we, we, we were kind of important bridged in that regard, and, and we were you know proud of that fact.
2: Yeah, I, I guess that would um, – there are some situations, I guess, where a researcher who seems like always has to try to figure out where their next dollar is coming from to do their research – uh, would have to maybe something that sort of sounds like sell your soul, but not really, but
1: <laughs> well, I get think, where I'm going. I think people find <laughs> where they they feel comfortable on the spectrum. So the, there still are sources uh, of basic research funding from the National Science Foundation and even within the National Institute of Institutes of Health. Um and and DARPA, the, you know, the military still funds some right. pretty basic research. Um, but, you know, a lot of people find their interest in, okay, you know, rather than just studying the fundamentals of human vision, how can we make it so that headlights are safer, so that people don't suffer as much glare from oncoming headlights? How can we display? Design a you know you see an, an interesting uh, trend now in in the automotive industry for years they kept moving more and more to the informatics or, or no they called it infotainment systems with touchscreens and many layers of menus that you had to go through. And it's like, dude, you're driving a car. You know? <laughs> Bring back the, the, the buttons and the dials so that you can, you, you know. Got,
2: you, you got other stuff to do besides you, stare at the
1: touch yeah, screen. Yeah, <laughs> you should be, you know, use the tactile feedback to adjust the temperature of your car rather than having to punch, I want to go to heat, I want to go to temperature, I want to go up, you know. So again, you know, finally, the human factors people have been saying for for fifteen years you know this the, the touch screen is not a great interface for for someone driving a vehicle um, and and finally track attention is being paid to to quote death of a salesman um yeah or death of a driver. But in any case, it's, it's, it's gratifying when, and, and again, you know, you can trace a lot of this back to fundamental research, you know, and, and workload and, and, you know, how much of your visual channel is being occupied with your out the window demands. And so to increase those for your in cockpit control is, is not such a great idea.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I look at uh, airliner cockpits sometimes and just shake my head. It's like, how does anybody keep up with all that stuff? You know, And, and I guess the, the new glass displays are designed to make it easier to keep up with that stuff, but I well, don't see how they do it.
1: You know, and there's a lot of wonderful human factors work on um, flight displays and, and we had one guy that did a lot of work on autopilot and you know, pilots getting confused about what mode they were in, you know, cause again, it's, it's one of these systems where you kind of start at the top level and then go down several levels and you know, you get distracted, you come back to it. You're kind of like, where am I in this system? And uh, yeah, that and confusion about what exactly the algorithms are doing can lead to a misunderstanding between pilot and automation, so that instead of working in concert, they can actually be working at cross purposes. Yeah, there's obviously I could talk about this all day, but uh,
2: yeah. Well, then there, then there, the next place I was going to go was what happens when you make the switch from one aircraft to another aircraft.
1: Um, Well, and, you know, getting cross-rated is, you know, a challenge. And, you know, one of the successes people have cited with Southwest was, you know, by using a single aircraft, you know, the 3-7, they didn't have to worry about pilots getting cross-rated and everything. And you could kind of use any of your pilots on any of the flights because they were you know, qualified and certified in that aircraft. Right. And, and and please don't get me started on the whole Airbus versus Boeing and the difference in design philosophy and the impact that has on the, the pilot aircraft interface. Well
2: that that must be another episode.
1: Another episode. Oh no. How um, many do
2: we have now?
0: Oh I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna throw another one in. Sure, do, Mary. Do you? Um, I, I almost guess you. You most cer <laughs> Let me try that again, Mary. I'm I'm guessing from what you're talking about that you must read accident reports. Is that the case?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've read both um, FAA accident reports. With NASA, we have our own um, accident investigation system. And, you know, I, I read a ton of ASRS incident reports. And then, of course, the military has its own um, way of, you know, categorizing and investigating mishaps and accidents.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I, occasionally I'll read one, and uh, it's, it's eye-opening the, how, how simple things can cascade and become a tragedy.
1: The cascade effect is, you know, it was interesting to read about it in in the context of these objects colliding in space because you see, you know, again, the cascading where one minor error leads to another, leads to another, and again, you would think that, you know, doing an a priori calculation of the probability of that sequence of events seems like it would be minuscule. But uh, James Reason has what's been termed the Swiss cheese model of accident causation, where, you know, you have these holes in the Swiss cheese, and if all the holes happen to align, that's when disaster ensues because... You know you have these multiple layers of protection but each layer has flaws um and you know on the on the really bad day those gaps those holes align and and that's when you read about it in the newspaper as we say
2: once again we'd like to thank dr mary Kay kaiser for joining us tonight uh this is larry heron Uh, of Mark Ratterman saying good night for Talking Space. Catch you next time.